You know, I was just um, out with uh, Raymond, and um, we met a man who uh, just had an awesome story from Pakistan, and he had come uh, just here a couple weeks uh, to Fort Worth, from Pakistan to Thailand to Sri Lanka to Australia to Papua New Guinea to San Diego, and we were just now seeing him. And as we heard his story, I just says, well, we are uh, followers of Jesus, and he interrupted me right there. He says, well, that's awesome, because I believe that Jesus uh, answers prayers, but he does it by sending people. So thank you. I know that Jesus is going to answer my prayers. And I kind of blacked out. It's like, that's pretty profound. And uh, just, um, it's just something that resonated with me, that Jesus sends people in our lives to answer our prayers. And I just... I'm sure as many of you can attest to, too, uh, I just, someone like Jeremiah and even Jennifer that uh, has been ministered through, um, just through, someone said, C.S. Lewis has a quote that says, um, if you ever met someone that's humble, you would never walk away and say, man, that guy's humble. You would walk away with a profound sense that that person cared for you and that that person was joyful. And I'm just thankful to have been poured in and invested in by so many um, faces right now that um, just are, uh, are humble. Not because I say that they're humble, but because that I can say that they uh, are happy, joyful people, and um, they seem really interested in me. So thank you. Um, our holiday um, that we celebrate in Texas, it, celebrated, uh, it started in Texas, that uh, celebrated now throughout the nation, and even outside of our nation now began here in Texas, um, it began on it, cel- it began the celebration the day that it occurred on uh, June nineteenth, eighteen sixty five. There was a general, General Gordon Granger, from Mobile, Alabama, had arrived at uh, Galveston Island, and he had arrived to take the position of military district governor for Texas. He was going to be in charge of Texas, and uh, he had five general orders that he announced. Uh, most of which dealt with his, his authority, his position, that I'm in charge now in Texas, and in uh, the control of cotton. But it was General Order 3 that resounded throughout Texas that day that we celebrate, that immediately from that point they celebrated as a holiday. And General Order 3 says, The people are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involved an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. At that moment, a quarter of a million people received hope and received a new passion for life. That was not based on something that he said, but that was based on something that had happened over two and a half years ago. It never became real in their life until someone told them. Over two and a half years ago, they were declared free and they didn't know it. No one had told them. What happened after that was called the scatter. Susan Ross, a freed person, recounts it as this. When my oldest brother heard we were free, we gave a, he gave a whoop, ran and jumped a high fence and told Mammy goodbye. Then he grabbed me up and hugged and kissed me and said, brother is gone. Don't expect you'll ever see me anymore. I don't know where he went, but I never did see him again. Many left, 
to be reunited with loved ones. Many left for education. There was lines around courthouses and county seats to be given a name, to be married. There was rights to assemble, so there was rights to worship. Many left just because they could. There was an optimism for the future. And we celebrate that day, interestingly, not the day that, as we know, the Emancipation Proclamation that declared their freedom. We celebrate the day that they were told. Over two and a half years, that time period where they were free and they didn't know, that's what we celebrate. They weren't given that day advice. They were given news. And that's what we are people of, people of good news. This word that we use for gospel is an old English word, good spell. It was a good story. That's what, they were, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate June 10th. The people that were given not advice but news of what had happened. This story, this gospel, this good spell, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Hobbit, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, he writes in a famous essay called On Fairy Tales about um, this story, this good story, that uh, it resonates on all of our hearts. That he says that God is Lord of angels, of men, and of elves. That the future, are the, that, that history and legend has merged together. So this story that we uh, are a part of, that we celebrate today, is this story that resonates on us, that we're attracted to. The best stories, our favorite stories growing up, the favorite movies that we can recall. All good stories, he says, come from a primary art. The same story that uh, we read as childs, the same ones we gravitate as we read as an adults, uh, are all telling a primary story. That things were good, there was problem, there was despair, and we needed a hero. And when all hope is lost, the hero comes and saves the day, and we come and live happily ever after. That's the story that he says that resonate with us, that we're drawn to. Our favorite stories speak this same, whisper it throughout the story. Our, uh, I thought that we'd ruined our kids when um, there was a new Star Wars out, the uh, Rogue One, and I... Wanted to see it, but wanted to do the right thing, where I, uh, we're trying to read reviews to see is this something that we need to be taking our kids to. And every time I read the reviews, uh, it, would, it would say, spoiler alert. And I was like, well, I don't want to read the spoiler alert, so it's okay. It's got to be fine, right? We'll, we'll just go. It'll be fine. It's, it's good guys, bad guys, happily ever after. And um, spoiler alert for you, if you've never seen it, uh, we're sitting there, and it's the heroes, and everyone dies. And I was uh, taken out of the story. I, can, I, I, I kind of feel, had a feeling of leaving my body and anticipating what the ride home was going to be like. And uh, I was like, man, did I ruin? This is not fair. This is not how it's supposed to go. We walk in and we can give ourselves to a good story because we know at the end it's going to end happily ever after. And I wonder... What have we done to our kids? You know, they just uh, were comparing books. They got their books for the years, and they both have a dog in the book. And one commiserates with the other one and says, you know that dog's not going to make it. No. <laughs> but this story uh, is a story that we crave, this story of happily ever after. It is the story that's told in Scripture throughout uh, centuries and authors and 66 books, 1,189 chapters. There is a story that's being told woven throughout all of the scripture. As W.A. Criswell calls it, the scarlet thread that's woven throughout that's telling one story, a meta-narrative. 
He says, if you, what is it? He says, he says, if you cut the Bible open at any verse, it would bleed Christ. And it's God's story given to all mankind that defines us, that gives us a reason for our existence, it gives us hope, that tells us what's our purpose for our existence. It's a story of how it all began, what went wrong, is there any hope, and how it will all end. There's a Jesus storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones that prefaces her uh, story uh, Bible. It says that it's, uh, the Bible is an adventure story. It's a story about a hero that comes from a country from far away to rescue his great treasure. It's a love story about a young prince who steps out of his palace, his throne, his everything to rescue the one he loves. That just when things go seem at their worst, that there's something inside of us in our story that we realize we were made for something bigger. There is something we were made for than, than, than what we were felt for. We sense and desire the happily ever after. It's just what J.R.R. Tolkien uh, talks about the turn. We anticipate the turn. So the Bible confronts us is what story are we in? Are we starring in our own movie? Are we starring in our own story? Are we participating in a story that is greater than ours? What is our happily ever after? What is our one thing? What is the one thing that we go to when our mind is at ease, when we're in the shower? Uh, when our, what is our one thing that when we're uh, by ourselves or when we're uh, uh, in despair? What is the one thing that we treasure? What is the one thing that you can't have that? What is the one thing that I cannot lose? And the answer to that is uh, our God. That's what we find in Scripture. What is the one thing when it boils down to that is our happily ever after? So I'd like to turn, if we read together if we can, uh, the answer to that is I get to uh, uh, wind up a month of missions with what is our happily ever after. Um, if you'll turn, Revelation 7, uh, chapter 9, and read with me through verse 17. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this message, God. I thank you for... Um, in despair, in brokenness, in lost, 
uh, in our sadness, God, that you show this parting of the sky, God, that you're happily ever after. And I just pray that that would be uh, real to us, that that would be our one thing. God, would you give us an ache and a desire for our home, for where we belong, for whom we belong to? God, I ask for your spirit here today, God. I just ask for your real presence and and that you would give us um, a heart for the things that you have a heart for. God, that you would just allow us to just believe. uh, And it makes no sense that you love us and that you desire and what you've done to restore a relationship with us and what our happily ever after is. Allow us to have the strength to give up our one thing and make you our everything. Please, Jesus. Amen. So, when Jeremiah asked me uh, to speak, um, if that wasn't enough to freak me out, he says, just make it from Revelation. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Revelation's weird. And and if you read old books about Revelation, uh, they don't age well. Um, And so what are we talking about in Revelation? And fortunately for where we are in this story, um, it's a, it, it, it's, it's many say is a parenthetical of, of all of the crazy eyeballs and dragons and all of these crazy things that we uh, are drawn to or we think of when we think of Revelation. Uh, what is he writing to? Uh, and, and, and so more importantly, maybe whom is he writing to? Uh, you know, there's been such, uh, such damage uh, to uh, people translating um, these passages. Uh, there's been uh, tragedies. Literally, tragedies because of misinterpretations of these very passages. So what does he say, first of all? Who is he writing to before we get ourselves in trouble and think that this book is written to us in 2018? Who is it written to then in this time? So he says in uh, Revelation 1.9, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he's writing to people that are going through a great tribulation. There are uh, people um, that, if you've heard of the stories of Nero, of there's a guy that comes right after him that's worse than him. All the things that you think of when you think of uh, the Christians, um, and the best, the, the, the only thing that's probably appropriate to say is fed to the lions. Uh, those were the good things. Um, all of this is happening in this time period to these people. Um, this guy, Domitian, is... Um, doing literally unspeakable things to believers. And it's in this uh, story that if you read before, and he speaks of a judgment that's coming, uh, he says at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? And this is the answer, who can stand? It's uh, meant to show us, if you've ever traveled in an airplane, Maybe it shouldn't be so neat to me, but I can't get over it. If you ever get in a plane and it's rainy and it's stormy and you're nervous and there's, you know, you're shaking up and down, and if you just get above those clouds, it just blows me away. There's blue skies. It's sunny. The whole time it was sunny. It was just your perspective. You were down there and you're scared and it's stormy and you get up and look, it's sunny the whole time. It was blue skies the whole time. That's what he's giving these people. He's showing them, look, look at your happy ending. So this is a gathering of end times when he's saying, look, look at your happily ever after. So, you know, uh, just this one's free. You know, if you look 
uh, and uh, Jesus' story is confusing uh, when he's just all of a sudden on his path, he just changes and gives his, um, and he just changes on the transfiguration on the mountain. He just shows himself dazzling white right before he goes to Calvary and explains to them that he must die. It's the same thing. He's saying, look, I'm about to go through something that's going to rip your heart apart, but he's showing himself of what he is. He's going to show his view of eternity. So the three things today, uh, what is his story? What is the story that he's trying to tell us? And what is our part in the story? And can we surrender our story? And what story does he give us? So what is his story? How do we surrender our story? And how he gives us a new story. So to speak about the whole story, I wanted to teach you a way that we can remember it together. So uh, this is about to get weird. So if you're able, stand up, and I want to show you a way that we can remember God's story from beginning to end. So there's four parts of the story, and we're going to use hand motions, and there's 10 parts of the hand motion. So the first part of the story is creation. So we're going to say, God created all things, and there was harmony. So God created all things, and there was harmony. And then the next part is the fall, what went wrong. So for that, we're going to say, but we disobeyed. We're crying. There was consequences, and we needed help. So let's do from the beginning. God created the world, and there was harmony. Thank you. We disobeyed, there was consequences, and we needed help. So the next part is the rescue. So we see at the beginning, even from Genesis 3.15, that God makes a promise. So God makes a promise. I this, I, and he, God kept the promise. So God made a promise. God kept a promise. And then the last one is just like the beginning, because that's what our happily ever after so all things new, forever with God. So let's do it together. Out loud together. Ready? From the beginning. God created the world, and there was harmony. But we disobeyed, and there was consequences, and we needed help. God made a promise. God kept a promise. And he's making all things new forever with God. Okay, so that's our story. So that's the story that we're a part of. So we see in Genesis 3, uh, before he tells us the promise of how he's going to rescue us, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, if you look before that, he sees Adam and Eve, and there is a curse. And we're cursed uh, psychologically. We don't know who we are. We lose our story. We try to make our own. We're cursed socially. Um, there's conflict. If you ride home with me after this and you look in the back seat, you'll see there's conflict. And there's conflict between genders, nations, race, classes. There's conflict that we live in. And then we're also cursed physically. You know, I keep getting these super, super, super blonde hairs recently. We're cursed. We're going to die. We're cursed physically. So, Martin Luther, who uh, credited with starting the Reformation, writes a, a commentary on Galatians, and in the preface, 
Uh, he describes uh, this condition famously. He says, Harmony was shaken by Satan in paradise when he persuaded our first parents that they might, by their own wisdom and power, become like God. Therefore, the whole world acted like a madman against this faith, inventing innumerable idols and religions with which everyone went his own way, hoping to placate a god or goddess. By his own works, that is, hoping without the aid of Christ and by his own works to redeem himself from evils and sins. All this is sufficiently seen in the practices and records of every culture and nation. So without the ability to please a God that we can sense that we're not able to please it, we just, we just move the mark. We just make up own gods or goddesses, he's saying. We just invent ways to try to uh, find the acceptance. We invent the Hebrew word for uh, worship is weight. We put weight in things that were never meant to hold us. We worship things that can't sustain our worship. So this is God's desire and that we see is uh, for uh, us to, or for him to rescue a, a people for himself. Uh, from every nation, tribes, and peoples and languages, it's God's heart for all people. We see uh, there's a guy, William Seymour, who uh, in California started a revival, a Sousa Street revival that led to literally hundreds of millions of charismatic and uh, Pentecostal believers. And he was asked later, interviewed um, during that street run, that the Spirit was working uh, there during that street revival. And he says that the greatest sign of the Spirit's work was love, especially and necessarily as expressed across racial and ethnic lines. So the first answer is if we've experienced gospel change is to, do we have a passion and a heart for uh, people that look and sound and talk different than us? Do we find ourselves drawn to people that are different? And that's what God shows us ultimately. Um, what we learned in the children's part is what God shows us ultimately is that he desires a people from all nations, tongues, and tribes, and that he desires us to desire them. So if you'll look uh, just with me and follow through briefly uh, what his story is in um, Revelation, and we'll just go through it briefly together, we see that multitude. We see the multitude of people from all nations, tongues, and tribes. And we see that they're in white robes. And he says in verse 13, who are these in white robes and from where have they come? He says, they have come out of the tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So there's one thing. They're all in white, but there's one thing that makes them white. And it's the blood of the lamb. There was only one way that they were showing up in these festive robes white, and it was the blood of the lamb. Like the Passover story, if you're familiar with it. Another day of judgment, when God tells his people that day to take a perfect lamb in the prime of his life and put your hands on him and kill him. And take the blood from this perfect lamb and put this blood over your doorposts. And when that day of judgment comes, the angel of death is going to come. And if he sees the blood of that lamb, then he will pass over. There's no other way. There was no goodness that day. There was no race. There was no uh, uh, belonging to any uh, group of people that was going to save the people that day when the day of judgment came. It was if they had the blood on them. And we see the same in Revelation. We see that there, who are those people in the white robes? It's those that have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. We see in verse 10, it says, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And you see that he's still a lamb. All peoples, 
are worshiping God and he's still a lamb. Why would he still be a lamb? It's this upside down kingdom that it's his victory through weakness that we owe uh, that the God of the universe could come down in any form and could reign in any form and then he, he says that he is still our lamb. And we see that he had, in verse 15, what God's plan for, for, the, for all time is to have a people for himself, verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. That is our purpose in life. You know, we've tried uh, through various times to catechize our children, which is less painful than it sounds. But the shorter Western catechism, the most famous one says, what is the chief end of man? And then the answer is, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our purpose. That is when we were finding it is what we were meant to do. In verse 16, so he says, So they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, and the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. John is encouraging his uh, audience that uh, they will have the protection that they desire. But I think most importantly for us, he's saying that they have freedom from want. They will no longer, in the presence of God, there is no want. And then at the end, he says, we see at the restoration of God's plan for the world, he comes down and reigns. His people come to do what they were made to do, to enjoy him, to glorify him. And our last verse says that he comes to wipe away every tear. He comes to make everything sad come untrue. And we see the world's happily ever after. So, can we surrender our story? And how is this different than our story? Does this sound like heaven to us? Does this sound like our happily ever after? We sense that we know that we were supposed to live for something bigger. We were made to. And we have, you've heard the, that sin is just missing the mark. There's another definition that says that sin is just an inward slant. It's just a, a, a curving in on ourselves. That our desire is, our, uh, is of ourselves. That uh, maybe God's way uh, is not wholly the best thing for me. Maybe God is holding out. Maybe there's some goodness. Maybe there's some happiness. Maybe there's some, some feeling of acceptance outside of what God can provide. And that's the essence of sin. He says, does this sound like paradise to you? If we delight in him, we get everything else. We don't hunger. We don't thirst. We have protection. But if we seek other things, we lose everything. Matthew 6.33, if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all things will be added to us. But surrender uh, is easy to say. Uh, it's hard. There's a guy, Steve Smith, who's a uh, church planner, catalyst, who's literally right now fighting for his life. He talks about a uh, Romanian uh, pastor who served as a pastor in Romania during um, communist reign, and he asked him, what's the biggest difference, now that you've been here a while, between the church then as you pastored and what you see now? And he says, you know, there's a word that we don't have that I've heard you say, and I can't translate it, and it's called commitment. We don't have that word, commitment. It says, you guys talk about uh, committing to uh, pray. You know, we can commit to read the Bible. We can commit to uh, be better people, to be charitable. We can, we can commit to lose weight. But when we commit, we're still in control. He says, if someone walks in and puts a gun in, points a gun at you, you put your arms up in the air because you're surrendering. He says, we talk about surrender, not commitment. When we commit, we're still in control. We can commit to something with, through the depth of what we feel devoted to it, but we still maintain control. When we surrender, God has control or someone else has control. 
says if, it's, if you a commitment, we can sign a piece of paper. We can, we can go through an agreement and sign a piece of paper. It says surrender is turn the paper over, and then we sign it and say, God, now you fill it in. That's the difference between surrendering. But the funny thing is, is we can't do that. We can't say surrender because all we'll be doing is committing to surrender. It's something that we can't do. So what do we need? How do we surrender our story? So we need a bigger vision. We need God to capture our heart. If you've ever heard the story or read the story in Isaiah chapter 6 about Isaiah the prophet who comes into the throne room of God and he's overwhelmed. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And an angel takes something from the altar, fire from the altar and cleanses him. And then God says, who will go? And almost as if he's cutting him off, he says, here am I. And we've heard that story and we celebrate that, that God's calling us and the passion that that uh, man Isaiah has on his life. But you know, the rest of the story is, and God says, so go. Talk to a people who will never listen to you, who will hate you. Tell them this story and they will chase you out of the villages that you go in. No one will ever listen to you. And he says, let's do it. That was someone that had surrendered and it had a, because they had a bigger vision. They had a vision of God. That's what we need. He says uh, that, that his love, he's calling his people to, to allow that to capture their heart. There's a uh, story about an um, old man and a grandson, and they're in the country, and there's a bunch of dogs underneath the porch, and one of the dogs sees a rabbit in the clearing of a field, and the dog takes off yapping and hollering, and the other dogs... Uh, since something's going on, hear him, and they take off after this rat, and they take off and follow the other dog, and the grandfather says to the grandson, says, in about five minutes, those other dogs, one by one, are going to come back, and they're going to have their tongue hanging out, and their head hanging low, and they're going to crawl back underneath this porch, and they're going to go back to sleep. He says, but in about 30 minutes, that first dog, he saw a rabbit, and he's going to come back with that rabbit, and that's 30 minutes come, come and go, and that's what happens. And the grandson asked the grandfather, how did you know that's exactly what was going to happen? He says, all the other dogs were just following the excitement. He says, that first dog, he saw it. That's what we need, to see it. In order for us to surrender, that's what we have to have. To surrender is to see it. There's, John's telling, his people, uh, telling these people that um, it's to be in good joy. And if you read a few chapters further in Revelation, they're going to die. He's comforting them to death. And he's saying, hold, be in good joy. A little while, he won't lose you. He is faithful. When we had the library sale, and uh, if you didn't notice the crates that we were able to sneak out, uh, one of the books that I bought um, was John Fox's Book of Martyrs. And um, I just was... Uh, it's not a light reading, and I kept showing things to Taryn and my wife, and she made me stop showing me that. Uh, and it just tries to chronicle, it's just a story of the people that had that vision, that even to death had that vision. And one of the things that, are the thing that struck me the most is the people that just had the opportunity to say, renounce your faith in Jesus right now, just say it. Just say you renounce your faith in Jesus bow to Caesar and just walk away and just live. And not only the people 
that would persevere with such joy. Though it's not the people that struck me. It's they did it in such a way that the, that the jailers and that the executioners would be next in line. That an executioner would, would see the joy, see that someone was living for something that much bigger, would be faithful to the end, and they would immediately go and take their place. What would make someone do that but to not have a bigger vision, to have something capturing their heart? C.S. Lewis says, the terrible thing, the most impossible thing is to hand over your whole self. Talking about uh, surrendering. It's hard. All of your wishes and, and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves. To keep personal happiness as our great aim in life. And yet at the same time, be good. We are all trying to let our mind and heart go on their way. Centered on money our pleasure, our ambition, and hoping, in spite of this, to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. As he said, a thistle cannot produce figs. If I am a field that contains nothing but grass seed, I cannot produce wheat. Cutting the grass may keep it short, but I shall still produce grass and no wheat. If you want to produce wheat, the change must go deeper than the surface. I must be plowed up and re-sown. We were made to participate in a story bigger than ourselves. There's a story, uh, it was a documentary in, on Nova. That's the stuff that Taryn makes me change when she walks in. Uh, about Ernest Shackleton, who had a failed, uh, ultimately failed tra- to go through the South Pole. And he uh, tells a story at the beginning of having a hard time uh, recruiting men for his mission. He puts out an ad in the paper in London and says... Uh, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. It says so many people responded to the ad that Shackleton later declared it seemed as though all the men in Great Britain were determined to accompany me. The response was so overwhelming. We have that desire inside of us to live for something bigger than ourselves. So if we surrender our story, what, what happens? He gives us a new story to play a part in his story. There's something beautiful about seeing someone do what they were made to do. There's an author, Annie Dillard, that says, I was my whole life, I had been my whole life a bell and never knew it until at that moment I was lifted and struck. There's something that we're drawn to when we see someone that sees this bigger vision, that has this happily ever after. My friends, they're right there, Brian and Rhonda. Uh, We had went one time to a camp to see uh, where there are some people that were living there, um, homeless. And um, I mean, it was awesome. It was powerful. And we went home, and honestly, um, that was the last time I had thought about them. And uh, we had that ice storm a few years ago, and um, I didn't know about it until later on that uh, you want anybody to know, but they went and bought everything warm that they could find at the store that was open. They went and bought all the propane stoves. They went and brought all the hamburgers that they could afford at McDonald's, and literally trounced through an ice storm to try to found them. And you know what struck me was just the, 
Just the beauty of seeing someone do what they were made to do. Just how effortless those two people were serving God. Just the grace that they uh, are, are walking in. Just, just seeing, seeing people do what God made them to do. So we're free when we give up our story. We're free from trying to matter. We're free from trying to write our own story. It's already been written. I can be free to love others finally because he loved me. I can give my life to others because Jesus gave his life to me. I can lay down the time and the effort I try to be accepted. By others, by giving myself to foolish things like wealth, by trying to matter, by measuring up, by going with the crowd, by getting in line, by doing the norm because Jesus laid down his life for me. I can realize that I'm accepted because of his love for me. I'm free to do things like look foolish or be humiliated because the one that loved me came down and was spat at and humiliated. I'm free to love others because of, what he, because of the love I feel for me. I'm free to forgive not only uh, others but myself because he has forgiven me. I'm free to be on mission for him because he says I cannot fail. I know the end. I know what I was made to do. I'm free to believe that what he says in his word that I'm new. That it doesn't matter what I've done or what's been done to me, I'm new. And when he gives me that identity, I, he tells me in the same passage that I'm his ambassador. It makes no sense that I'm his plan A. That someone like me, he takes to go tell this message, just like at the beginning. This good news to people that that's what they desperately need. I'm part of a royal priesthood. I'm free to desire what he desires. It says in Luke 15:10 that there's angels in heaven going nuts. They're having a party when one sinner repents. I'm free to have that passion. I'm free to have that heart. If you want to live in answered prayers, and uh, for the longest time, man, I was struggling. Am I living in answered prayers? Set a reminder in your phone right now that I will pray if not for lost people that I know, that I will, that God, will you give me a heart for lost people that I know for five minutes a day and see if God doesn't answer that prayer. You know, I, it is difficult. It's like uh, double dutch. How do I start a life that, where I'm not the star of it? How do I start a life where God is glorified? Um, we ask, and we think it's a good question to ask, is God, what is uh, your will for my life? And that's the, wrong, that's the wrong question. It's, God, what is your will? And how can I leverage my life to make your will happen where I live? There's a story of a guy who, uh, it resonated with me that if we picture our life, and I think many of us do, if we picture our life as a, as a $1,000 check, it's an old story, so allow for inflation, thousand, that our life is worth 1000 bucks. that, God, I'm going to give you my life. Call me. Where shall I go? What great thing will I do to, to give you my life? And for many of us, that's not what he does. He tells us to go to the bank and cash it and get quarters. And would you give that life, would you give those one quarter at a time, 50 cents at a time? That's the ask that he gives us. Can we do that? So, let me pray. Jesus, what else are we going to give our life for? God, help us to see that, um, man, I hope I glorified you. 
Help us to see that uh, just how small uh, living for ourselves is. God, how grand it is that we get to live for a Savior such as you and what you've done. And it's not fair because we know how it ends. We know that we have a happily ever after in you. God, I pray, I know that there's people hurting. I know that there's heartache. I know that there's things that are uh, crushing us all. But God, like John said, a little while, look and see what we were made for. God, I pray that that would be something that we could uh, live from. God, help us not to just try harder. Help us not to uh, try to be better. God, help us to believe that you love us and that you did it all. That we can be free to serve you because nothing in this life loves us and can care for us like you do. We, we were meant for only one thing, you. God, help us to believe that. I love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Amen.